You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're delighted today to be joined by Dan Diamond. Since January 19th, he's been the national health reporter at the Washington Post. Prior to that, for the, for the five years leading up to January 19th, he was a health reporter at Politico. And Dan wrote the Political Pulse newsletter and host of the Pulse podcast series. So welcome, Dan. Great to have you with us. Steve, delighted to be with you. Thank you. So you had a piece today around what is the question of what is the global health strategy of the Biden administration. Last week, we had the announcement that it would support the petition by South Africa and India to WTO, to the World Trade Organization, to ease patent protections. That has stirred lots of debate. We can come back to that. There's been all sorts of other steps taken, many of them sort of in isolation around vaccine donations or loans to Canada, Mexico. 60 million AstraZeneca donations still to be determined exactly where that goes. When the Quad met a while back, U.S., Japan, Australia, India, a commitment to expand production by India's private sector producers by a billion doses over two years. So various steps taken, but still not a clear sense of what was the big strategy and goals, who who within the administration is actually going to lead this effort. We have folks that matter enormously, the COVID-19 response team under Jeff Seitz, the National Security Council under Jake Sullivan with Beth Cameron, the Department of State, HHS, U.S. Agency for International Development, and others. So what has seemed to be a piecemeal approach now is coming under much more scrutiny, particularly with the pressures coming from India and the awareness that the gap between what we've access to vaccines within the wealthiest and most powerful versus those those countries that are really in crisis, low and, and middle income countries in real crisis. So, Dan, tell us a bit about your piece. Why is it that you're coming away with this strong sense that this is a piecemeal approach and that there is confusion around who's in charge and what would the strategy be? Well, Steve, the reason my colleague and I, Tyler Pager, came away with that impression that things are piecemeal is because that's what our sources told us. People who have been involved in this process have said the move on the waiver, for instance, that is not a strategy. It might be a part of a strategy, but as as we may well get into, the waiver itself is not going to do very much in the near term to address surging coronavirus cases around the globe, particularly in India. So what are the tools? What are the ways to curb the virus? The U.S. has announced credit where due from people in the World Health Organization and beyond. The U.S. has announced a number of steps that have been hailed for donating doses, for committing to global leadership, and so on. But those individual staccato moments, there's no comprehensive strategy knitting all of this together at the moment as we talk on the morning of May 10th. And I think bringing it back to your question about the piecemeal strategy This is what officials involved in parts of the process have said to us, that they would prepare primers, they'd have briefs, they'd have conversations, and it was unclear at times who was making decisions or where these decisions were going. That's very different than the domestic response, where there's been 
a baked-in process, a clear leader in Zions. Things are much vaguer on the international side. And Dan, how do you explain that? What do you think the root causes are? Well, I'd love to talk about it with you because you've been following this space for quite a long time. I'll offer my thoughts and then you should you should tell me your read, Steve. I, I think one piece is the domestic response was the priority on day one. You can go back and look at the strategy that President Biden unveiled and then spoke about January 21st. The strategy is overwhelmingly about domestic steps, which makes sense. He was coming into a situation that was on fire. The U.S. cases were surging. The U.S. is arguably at that point the worst outbreak in the world, or if not the worst outbreak, pretty close. So the need to get our own house in order before going and putting out the fires around the globe, I think that makes some sense. And that's where a lot of the energy has been and the priority has been. So when it comes to issues like having a vaccine stockpile, there are officials focused on the domestic response who don't want to get ahead of the problems here, don't want to give away our resources, our energy, our time, our vaccines, if it turns out that we're not past the worst of it. I think that's one challenge. I think a second issue is we are relatively new into this administration. People are still finding slots, finding space, learning to work together. So there would always be some learning curve in ramping up. And when it comes to the international arena, there are just as many factors and agencies and people involved as the domestic response, especially if you're figuring out what we can pull away from the domestic effort, plus all of the global challenges of how do we balance a rising China? How do we balance what Russia is doing and so on? So it's that much more of a thicket to navigate. And I think a final reason why the worldwide challenge hasn't gotten as much attention is because we have only recently gotten to a point when the administration felt like it was ready to really tackle that worldwide challenge. They wanted to see cases fall. They wanted to be in a position where they could start turning their energies and attentions beyond our borders. And given where the coronavirus cases are, they're now at their lowest level in seven months. Deaths have also plunged. Vaccinations are up. It does feel like the moment where they are preparing to pivot to the international plan. Andrew? Yeah, Steve, thank you. And Dan, thanks so much for being here. We've really learned a lot from your reporting in these last months. Do you think part of the problem is there's no central person coordinating the international response? Is it, Because it's across all these agencies, what's, what's happening with that? It's a great question and one that we put to White House officials. And their response was, the strength was not having a central person right now, is having lots of agencies uh, to tap. I do think there's a chance, Andrew, that they'll be pushing for a single leader in the near future. The idea that it was Jeff Zients over the domestic response and uh, Jake Sullivan at NSC, that was something that the White House really stressed to us as our story was going to publication, that there are these two strong leaders, they're making a lot of the decisions. But I can just tell you, and I know Tyler, my colleague, would say the same, we heard from enough people involved in the effort that that process is not as clear, is not as straightforward as what's happening on the domestic side. So I want to put it back to Steve. Steve, why do you think that is so far? You've been watching this really closely. Well, Dan's touched on some of the central factors, right? The president not wanting to deviate from the, his top concern in arresting the pandemic at home and not be seen as that. You know, keep in mind, we had over 300,000 cases in January 8th and you know, came into power with, with multiple cascading crises and wanting to do that. 
The second, I think, is that the agenda that we face, when you look out globally and you look at the complexities of what we face, we face right now a world on fire. We, we have a second wave tearing through India in a terrifying way, and likely we could see replications of that in many other countries. We see an acute shortage of vaccines. We, no matter how you cut it, the next six months are going to be very, very painful at trying to get vaccines coming forward. We will likely have monstrous stockpiles later in the year and into next year. We have created an industrial base unlike any other country in the world, and we have considerable sway over some of the major vaccine developers, but we haven't figured out what we're supposed to do with that. And the strategy that we had domestic really didn't have an international component to it. I mean, in that 200-page document released on the inauguration day, there were 10 or 11 pages on the international, but it was pretty sketchy. It was pretty sketchy, and it was a sign of what we just talked about. The domestic priority will, will dominate. When you look outside today and you, uh, and you, you look at how are we going to move stockpiles, how are we going to deal with the Chinese and the Russians, how are we going to deal with this acute shortage, how are we going to make sure COVAX doesn't continue to be crushed by what's happening in India with the export bans. And then this central concern of how are we going to expand production capacity, particularly for mRNA uh, vaccines in, in, other, in other parts of the world. That's a huge agenda. And I wonder whether there are voices simply saying, how much of this do we want to own? If we get in too deeply into this and we overcommit, who's going to be there to work with us? Because when you look at the other major powers in Europe and UK, UK is slashing its budget. It's, it's the head of the G7. It's come up with some good ideas, but it doesn't have much to put on the table, much muscle. The Europeans are not leaning fairly far forward either. So the caution and hesitation, if you put yourself in the president's shoes or Jake, Jake Sullivan's shoes, I can imagine they're looking out around the world and going, yeah, yeah, it would be great for us to get in there and muscle our way forward and shape as the essential power here, we have more assets than any other country in the world to shape the outcome, but still would be very pretty cautious. Over to you, Dan. What do you think? Steve, I, I just want to underline a point that you just said. So you think that one reason why the U.S. has been cautious is because of the risk of political blowback and doing too much and owning the strategy if we can't control as a country what happens globally? I think that the, first of all, uh, we're a deeply divided country and any misstep will be seized upon by Biden's opponents. And if it's seen as a step that compromises the ability domestically to arrest this pandemic, then it will it will become even more outsized and become part of the 2022 cycle. So there's that dimension. There's the domestic. How do you sell expansive engagement internationally to half of America that is deeply skeptical and a large portion of which are, are claiming that this was not the duly or legitimately elected president. But the other piece I'm emphasizing is that the problems that we face at a global level are extraordinarily complex and big, and the answers are not immediately apparent. The U.S. does need to step forward with a strategy and commit uh, with people with gravitas and real resources and long-term strategy, but let's not kid ourselves. It's going to be risky and really difficult. Andrew? Yeah, this is fascinating. And Dan, back to you, I wanted to ask, in the reporting that you've done and your colleagues have done, have you sensed a reluctance inside the Biden administration of a you know willingness to really take this on globally? 
after all, we are trying to withdraw from Afghanistan. We are, you know, President Biden has adopted some, you know, America first type of policies to really address all the crises we're having here at home. Is there any reluctance you're seeing out there? Hmm. Interesting way to think about it. I I know that there are officials who are the opposite of reluctant. They are raring to go. And that's one reason we wrote the story, hearing from these officials who are frustrated that there has not been a global plan, even as people are dying. So senior level folks do want to do more. Now, is there caution at the highest level for the reasons that Steve just laid out? I, I think that squares that the desire to get things right and make whatever big step the right step, that that can be constraining. I also know just having talked to enough senior officials, they've gotten tired of the cliche, a virus case anywhere could be a virus outbreak everywhere, which it's it's a cliche for a reason. It's true. But they know that. They, they've internalized that. And they know that the risk of an India outbreak leading to more mutations and variants and things that will come back and hit the U.S., I, I know officials are trying to grapple with that. So when it comes to the hesitancy, I don't know if it's about not wanting to engage versus they want to engage, they just haven't settled on the right strategy, the right singular leader, and so on. One thing I want to add to this, Andrew, Dan, two points. One is we're heading into a season of high diplomacy around these problems, right? So we're going to have the EU G20 Health Summit May 21st. We're going to head into the World Health Assembly from the 24th to 31st of May, and then we're going to hit the G7 June 11th to 13th. So these questions are not going to go away, right? At each turn, there are going to be questions around, okay, where's the high-level diplomacy on this problem? The second point is we had an extraordinary absence of high-level diplomacy for the first year or more of this pandemic, which was shocking and puzzling until you realized that the most powerful countries were pinned down by their own crises and the U.S. had chosen to go into a toxic meltdown with China. And so nothing happened at the Security Council. Nothing happened at G7. G20 did a few things. So you had this paralysis and and utter absence of high-level diplomacy. And now we're in a moment where everybody's saying there must be high-level diplomacy now to address this crisis 16 months into it and when it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So it is difficult. The other thing I'd say in in defense of folks within the administration, if you look, you take all of the different people who are leading the charge and leading the response, virtually every one of them has deep experience with either HIV AIDS epidemic going back in the case of Tony Fauci to when it all started 40 years ago in June of, of 81 and or hands-on experience with Ebola and with Zika and the like. And so these are not people who are afraid, who run away from these problems. They know the complexities. They know the communications difficulties. They know how prone the population can be to hysteria and to sort of runaway angst. They also know that it took us five to six years to fix the antiretroviral gap, which we had, we had a magical therapies come on stream in 96, but only available to the wealthy at high exorbitant prices. It took five years to sort that out until we had generic, mass-produced, very cheap antiretrovirus and a way to get them out there. We don't have five years in this case. And I think people with that deep experience in HIV are acutely aware that 
time is time is moving along really rapidly and we've got to we've got to come up with some solutions. Along those lines, Steve and our colleagues released a high-level report on Friday. It's about vaccine confidence and misinformation. What are we to make about the continuing problem with people's vaccine hesitancy, not confident in the vaccines, not worried about, you know, getting vaccinated? What, what are we to make of this? I think it depends who you ask. I was talking to a doctor who's been trying to help folks in India in that crisis. And that doctor sent me a political cartoon last night where on the left, it was an American saying, yeah, I don't, I don't think I want the vaccine. And then someone in India on the right saying, please send them to us. Uh, (laughs) uh, We're, we're looking a gift horse in the mouth. Unfortunately, I did see the CSIS report. This is something that I've been writing on for some months, watching a number of zoom focus groups convened by pollster Frank Luntz going out and finding Republicans on my own. I think it's an unfortunate outgrowth of how the U.S. has processed this pandemic, which has been split screen. There are lots of Americans who believed it was a threat from the beginning, who got their information from reliable sources. There are a lot of Americans who were told that it wasn't a threat, or if it was, it was overhyped, or it was a political creation. And that set in with a number of Republicans, Trump voters, there's certainly members and communities of color who have been hesitant about the vaccine for other reasons too. Maybe they don't have regular access to a doctor or a pharmacist, so it's that much more unusual to be encouraged now to go and get a vaccine. But I think that this has been one of the defining challenges of the Biden domestic response in these early months. You could see a world where we're not at 50% of all Americans vaccinated today, but 70% just given the sheer number of vaccines that have been made available. And states that are already saying we're getting too much supply to use, don't don't distribute to us this week. I, I think it's just a striking moment in both the triumph of public health and at the same time, the despair of, of public information and how people are being educated and informed. It's a really interesting way to put it. Uh, do you think there's any way the Biden administration can turn this around? Or, you know, you've been watching what Frank Luntz and Dr. Brian Castrucci have been doing in their focus groups, and they seem to be able to, when, you know, confronting people who are vaccine hesitant with real information, they seem to be able to change some minds. But what does this mean for the rest of the world? These are all, you know, or the rest of the United States, I should say. These are really, you know, small focus groups and, you know, one-to-one. And it seems to me that, you know, yeah, if we had a chance to go around one-to-one to every vaccine-hesitant person in the world with their personal physician telling them who they probably trust the most, listen, you really need to get this, things would be better. But short of that, what are we going to do at scale here? Yeah, we can't we can't put Tom Frieden on an hour Zoom call with all 40 million vaccine hesitant folks. Or maybe we can, but I don't I don't know if he'd be okay with it. We can, but if they would just tune in. <laughs> <laughs> so I I thought those focus groups were fascinating from the first one where 19 Trump voters came on, they were all hesitant for different reasons. Some of the hesitation I thought was completely logical. People asking, "Why is this vaccine safe when it was developed so quickly?" And just having people like Dr. Tom Frieden, the former head of the CDC, or Republican politicians who were doctors, hear their concerns out, and by the end of the session, make them feel more confident that the vaccine was safe, that was a transformative experience to witness. It was incredible. And I believe of the 19 people in that focus group, at least eight 
have been vaccinated or had plans to be vaccinated as of last week. So this wasn't just talk. These were people whose minds truly were changed. But to your point of how does this get done at scale, the Biden administration has tried to empower local leaders, and whether those are local health leaders, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, or community leaders, pastors, teachers, other volunteers, through its community core program, the hope is that just getting people who are already trusted, who aren't some random former CDC doctor like Dr. Frieden, but someone who may have the ear of a vaccine hesitant person, that just having a similar conversation and giving more information can win that person over. I also think there's a bit of a social contagion effect. The more people you know, the more people in your life who say, I got the vaccine, it's safe, or I didn't get the vaccine, I got sick from COVID, man, I wish I'd gotten the vaccine. That seems to have a real effect too. What about the people who just flat out, you know, can't seem to understand that this science, they, you know, because they some people are, like you pointed out, some people are do have very legitimate concerns. They're worried about their health. They're worried about, you know, I've heard things about fertility. I've heard all kinds of different stories and none seem to really be rooted in, in scientific fact, but they still have those sentiments. It seems to me that we're, we're really just, you know, running on a treadmill like hamsters here in a circle and we're just not going to be able to reach these people. So what, what happens then if we can't reach these people? And that's what I wanted to ask Dan and Steve. Well, I guess I can take that first. So what is good is that that population of vaccine-wary people has shrunk. Kaiser Family Foundation found promising gains in that population. I think it was down from 29% who said no way to 20% in the most recent poll. The number of Americans who are hesitant seems to be going in the right direction, which is down. That said, I did that focus group with Frank Luntz in the middle of March saw minds being changed, virtually everyone saying at the end of it, wow, I'm planning to go get the shot or, you know, at least I'm thinking about it now. And I went back and did another focus group that I shadowed with months, uh, some days later, some weeks later, expecting much the same. And instead, it was a total dud. Tom Frieden was rejected. Other messages were, were falling flat. And in trying to understand that, it seemed to me, Andrew, that the people who were maybe more gettable the people whose minds could be changed increasingly had been changed. And to your point, the people who were left were that much more dug in. So how to reach them? I think there's still an argument that people need more time. You, me, Steve, we've been thinking about coronavirus, the vaccine, all this stuff for months, for a year. A lot of Americans haven't had that kind of deep consideration of what these vaccines are, whether they're safe, they need to make up their own mind. And that can be on a time frame that we're not working on. And I think a second issue is, or, or second possibility, excuse me, is the more that we see others getting it, people in our lives, maybe some more celebrities or politicians. Donald Trump was not seen to be particularly effective by the focus group or by Kaiser polling or by other polls. But at the same time, maybe if Donald Trump says a little bit more, that changes a few more minds. I just think it's accretive, right? The more people who say this is safe, the more people who have good experiences with the vaccine, the better message ultimately gets to people who are still on the fence. It's a really good point that maybe some of these folks just aren't on the same timetable as us and we need to give them a chance and see how it works out when, you know, maybe they don't get admitted to a ball game or they don't get admitted to a restaurant or can't go to work. 
It's a very volatile opinion climate. I mean, what you saw, Dan, between those two groups, those two focus groups, I think is pretty typical that from one day to the next, opinion is not all that easy to predict. And we do need to be respectful of these populations in listening. We do need to have the right messengers. Republican leadership has to step up and own this problem in a more visible and consistent way. We've got these GOP congressional doctors doing the PSAs. That's a good step, but it, much more than that is needed. I wanted to bring it around also to Tucker Carlson attacking Frank Luntz just recently, suggesting he's in Pfizer's pocket because he did some consulting for them in 2007. What does this foretell? I mean, is this foretell that people like Luntz, who I admire greatly, and I think he's been enormously creative and impactful, at putting a focus on this issue. Is it just that he's getting too close to the bone in terms of the core Republican Trump votership and there's some reaction somehow this is seen by a, by engaging on these matters? It's it's now crossed some line to invite attack from Tucker Carlson? So if I can take you inside my reporting process, when Tucker made that attack on, on Luntz, I reached out almost immediately and asked his people, asked Frank, what's what's the deal here? Are you being paid by Pfizer? And that's when he said that, you know, he had been, but it ended in 2007. So I think journalistically, it's a legitimate question if a guy is running a focus group and has ties to someone who might benefit from the message in the focus group, I should report on it, that the question can be asked and then conclusions can be drawn when information is put in front of informed readers. I will say that I talked to Biden officials who shadowed some of these focus groups. I talked to public health experts who were on these calls. I talked to people who had fought Frank Luntz. He had been against the Affordable Care Act. They had been for the Affordable Care Act. Now they're all on the same side of the table. And they said, we think he's doing good. <laughs> these are good public health messages. I, you know, It's funny, it's surprising to be aligned with Frank Luntz, but we think he's doing right by Americans. So what does this mean for Fox News and Tucker Carlson? I'm not totally sure. I, I can speculate. I had thought a few months ago that it was odd well, when Tucker Carlson was raising questions about vaccines and other aspects of coronavirus. I did reach out to Fox News about it, and the story didn't really go anywhere. But it was part of this broader issue of Republican hesitancy. And if the most popular cable news host is raising these questions... And disproportionately, Republicans are saying they don't want to get the vaccine. You can almost see that feedback loop. Bringing it back to this earlier point about time, though, as, as Andrew was pointing out, I've now watched, I think, four Frank Luntz focus groups, three in full, and then a fourth where I just watched excerpts. But the last focus group was incredible. It was people who had been skeptical, who had changed their minds. And Frank asked them a question that I, I had suggested, which is, now that you've changed your mind, what do you think about all the people who haven't? And some of them said they're selfish, <laughs> they need to get with the program, enough time has passed. But others did say, look, they'll come around, we did, just give them more information and more time, people work on their own schedules. So I liked that because it was a hopeful note in a year when there's been a lot of pessimism and despair. It really is a hopeful note, and I'm glad that that came out in your reporting and it came out in your observations of it. I mean, it, it really... You know, I think we're so quick to write people off because of political reasons or social reasons. But, you know, if we just step, take a step back and be human about it and give people some time, maybe that'll turn things around a little bit more. The job that brought me to Washington, D.C. was I dreamed of being a foreign service officer. I went through the test. I wanted to be 
a diplomat. I thought that was that was my calling. I, I was pretty far down that path. I obviously didn't go down that path. I became a journalist. But I, I always want to hear every side of the story. And I think in this case, there are vaccine-hesitant people who have either gotten bad information or in some cases have the information but just have deep-seated concerns for valid reasons. And some of those people have moved. I think there's hope for others to move to. Dan, let's close with a little reflections from you on being a journalist in this period. You've been covering the pandemic from the beginning, initially Politico, now at the Post. What's that experience taught you about conducting journalism amid a pandemic? Well, first, this has been the most competitive time to be a journalist on the healthcare beat, especially in those earlier days of the pandemic when it was so melded to the 2020 election and the White House and President Trump's response. I mean, there would be days when I'm competing with Maggie Haberman at the Times and Josh Dawsey and Jonathan Swan and all these major White House reporters, and then also competing with all the public health and science reporters. I mean, everyone wanted a piece of the story. So I thought that was that was heady times to be a reporter trying to break news. If I'm being frank, Steve, I, I also think that being so close to the story has helped me evaluate some of the coverage and at times see stories that I wish I had and other times see stories that I thought were flawed and stories that maybe I would not have reported, but but got lots of attention in this very heady time. What is it like to compete against, you know, your colleague, Josh Dawsey and <laughs> someone like Maggie Haberman? These really are some pretty seriously great journalists. Well, it makes me want to do my best for sure. I mean, there are there are different ways of going after a story. And without tipping my hat too much, I mean, some of this is probably guessable. They're White House reporters. I'm more of a health reporter. And at Politico, I was covering that health and politics collision. So I was talking to people in the White House, but I'd also be talking to people at HHS, at the agencies. So we might be going after the same story, but from different perspectives. And a White House story that, say, Maggie might do, I might have the HHS perspective, which aligns on lots of things, but goes in a somewhat different direction. And I think it just amped up, especially at Politico, the, the desire to be first as much as possible, to break as many stories. It's a little different now that I'm at the Washington Post. Yes, we want to break every story here too, but it moves at a different pace. It, it is for a somewhat different audience, and there's a print component that is wildly different than how I thought about things at Politico. Without going too into the weeds, at Politico, if I put up a story that was 2,000 words, 3,000 words, I'm sure my editors might bristle and you know care about tightening things up, but there was no real reason to limit a story. At The Post, we have to think often about what is the print version of that story. So the piece that Steve mentioned at the top of the show, the one that ran today on the front page, we had to get it done at a certain time to make sure it qualified for the front page. We had to meet inches limits. You were talking earlier about some of the high-level officials in the Biden administration who have all this experience, whether it's Gail Smith or Beth Cameron or, or others. There was a lovely quote from the World Health Organization's uh, Bruce L. Word about all these wonderful people that Biden has put into place. In a perfect world, maybe I would have included that in the story. But you have to kill your darlings to, to get stories into the print edition at times. So it's been an interesting perspective that some of the things that I was able to do and chase at Politico, my colleagues, whether it was Josh Dawsey at The Post or Maggie at The Times, they might have had limitations that I did not have writing for a digital audience. 
How much uh, pressure do you have now that you're supposed to be multi-platform to do, you know, television, to do podcasts, you know, be be online in terms of social media? You know, how, how much does that factor into your job on a daily basis? <laughs> well, hopefully not too much today, because as, as you know, and Steve knows, I'm wearing an Orioles hat and I look totally unkempt. So I'm not TV ready. <laughs> Podcast ready, sure. TV ready, not so much. It's probably about the same. Politico is pretty good about pushing its reporters out. And if anything, I was doing even more at Politico. I had a podcast. I would be on TV probably more at Politico than I've been at The Post. But some of that too, I think, was the moment in time. There was more interest in the internal politicking of the coronavirus response in March, April, August, September of 2020. We're, we're in a moment where people care about what's happening in the Biden administration, but it's not, it's not quite at the same intense white hot heat of the Trump era. Dan, what are the two or three deepest memories you think you're going to carry forward with you through your life from those first 16 months of the pandemic? There are two ways to answer that, Steve. I think one, there are the stories where, you know, the hair stood up on the back of my neck, where I knew that it was a big piece and the stakes of working on those stories and wanting to get them right. So this, not too far from our computer, I don't know if you can, can see this, Steve and Andrew, I'm holding the sheaf of paper that turned out to be the Obama administration's pandemic playbook. And my colleague at Politico at the time, Holly Tuzzi, had gotten a tip, got, got these documents, wasn't totally sure what they were. She gave them to me. I sat with them in this room that I'm talking to you on, and we kind of reverse engineered what, what this document was. And the more I learned about it, the more I realized, wow, this is potentially a pretty big story that the Obama administration had created a guide for this moment, and the Trump administration threw it on a shelf, as one source, I think, told Halley. So there were stories like that, like a CDC story about meddling with the morbidity and mortality weekly reports. A few that I knew were just potentially big, and I wanted to do my best to get them right. But then personally, I thought the pandemic was pretty clarifying about what actually mattered, what actually mattered to me as a person and to me as, as a reporter. A lot of things fell away. All my all my habits, all my my stress relief. I would go swimming four or five times a week to kind of get away from devices. It was the one time that no one could reach me. Obviously, I had to stop doing that. I, I had rhythms where I would meet sources in person. Obviously, I had to cut that back. So things got very bare bones. But it, it was revealing about what actually mattered. And you know, family and friends mattered. And being able to go for a run every day to burn off some stress mattered. And trying to do my best to cover the pandemic and break as many stories as possible mattered. So life got very simple and almost monk-like, but in a good way, I think. So we close our podcast by asking our guests the same question, which is what gives you the greatest hope and optimism looking, looking ahead? If it's about the pandemic, I'm thrilled to see the numbers trending in the right direction in the United States. Cases are plunging, deaths are going down, vaccinations are going up. It really is a moment of, of optimism and shine. If it's more universal, I, I think I am an optimist at heart. Humanity has accomplished incredible things. The, the way that my life has changed, that I'm talking to you on Zoom, that we were able to weather this pandemic. Obviously, not everyone was a horrible, horrible experience, but all the ways that society was able to persist at this time when things were completely shut down and there was a mystery virus spreading around the world. I think things could have gone a lot worse than they did. So I, I'm an optimist at heart, and people give me that hope. Dan, thanks so much for being with us today, and thanks for all the great work you're doing. 
Really appreciate it, Dan. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be with both of you. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Bulver and Samantha Chivers. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS 2021, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts. Thank you.